Welcome, friends, to Breakfast in the Ruins, a Michael Moorcock flavoured podcast. On this show, I'm once again joined by author Andy Darby as we head back into Moorcock's catalogue of sort of standalone science fiction novels with 1965's The Fire Clown, or as it was retitled in the 1970s, The Winds of Limbo. I say sort of because although this is a self contained novel, it is a Moorcock story and certain elements do reoccur and echo throughout later works not least the character of the Fire Clown himself. Moorcock was in his twenties when he wrote The Fire Clown, and in the Golanx edition from a decade or so ago, it's sandwiched in between the Sundered Worlds and the Shores of Death, all three being written and published between 1965 and 1966. As ever, an astonishingly productive period that had already seen the collection of Elric Tales published as the first edition of Stormbringer, and culminated in Moorcock completing his manuscript for the final programme. Since then, it's appeared in numerous collections by White Wolf, Millennium, and of course Golanx, and has undergone the odd revision, as we talk about in the body of the show, a habit Moorcock would indulge over the decades with other early works too, and some later ones. But for the purposes of this excursion I'm sticking with the earlier, original text. At some point I may get the time to make some kind of analysis of all the revisions and rejigs of these 60s standalone novels that brought them in line with his wider multiverse, but unless the fire clown takes form in our world and brings the status quo crashing down, that's likely to be in a long distant future when the sun is shrunk and darkened. But for now, come with Andy Darby and me to the lower levels, join the thronging admirers, maybe get a bit shirty, have a bit of a riot, but most of all, breathe in the winds of limbo. <laughs> Well, back in Derry and Tom's, and I'm delighted for the second time to have Andy Darby with me. Welcome back, Andy. All right, mate. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, you know what? Thanks for returning. It always cheers me up no end when someone comes on once and the sea fit to return again to Derry and <laughs> Tom's. So it's always a winner. What have you been up to? Writing mostly, actually. Mm. Uh, when I'm not working, I'm I'm sort of trying to uh, do this um, Elizabethan sword and sorcery thing that I was I talked about last time, I think. Indeed, um, yeah. And I'm I'm on the first edit of that. Almost finished the first edit, and it's it's shape shifted a bit and changed, and uh, it's taking on new forms. And I think I might even do a second version of it and alter ah. the main protagonist to a different form. Yeah, and see how it works. Yeah. This is one of the worst things about writing, isn't it? Constantly rewriting yourself. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. 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 When well, you suddenly think to yourself, you know what? I was a fool. I should yeah. have gone over there. And, and then you go over there and you go, ah, but there's something else over there. And you end up running from one place to another in order to get it done. But uh, I quite enjoy the process, to be honest. So I'm, I'm not that stressed. Yeah. This, yeah. this is why I think... You have to take your hat off to Moorcock, speed binge, three days, ah. throw the pages over your shoulder to your mate, boom, yeah. done. <laughs> Fucking hell, I wish, I wish I could do that, you know? <laughs> yeah. Absolutely, yeah, I wish I could as well. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a writer per se, but um, I've been rewriting and rethinking about volume three of the, uh, the mm. Journal of Jared and Arthur Connolly probably for mm. about the last eight months. And at oh, some right. point, I'm just going to have to pinch myself and say, just fucking stop. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> stop, yeah. write it down, finish it off, print uh, it out, send it out. But we'll see. 
Yeah, it's got to be done, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and of course, you've published Me and the Monkey Part 2 as well. Yes. What's the monkey up to? Um, in that particular volume, um, he travels off to South America to find, uh, obviously, another monkey temple because you can't have too many of them. <laughs> um, there's uh, there's uh, some old friends return, shall we say, um, and then they get involved in all manner of shenanigans with the uh, the Illuminati sorts, mm. um, who by this time the monkey is exceedingly pissed off with and decides that uh, with extreme prejudice he's going to make their lives very, very unpleasant. And then they end up uh, trooping off to the Himalayas. Uh, there's a whole mad sequence there with armies of the dead and monkey gods fighting <laughs> and all this shit. So it all went a bit Game of Thrones at that point. And um, it gets a little bit sort of like, starts to get a bit space opery as mm. we end at, at, towards the end of the, the book, um, when this whole other thing that just occurred to me while I was writing just popped up. And I thought, oh, I'll put that in. Why not? Um, I'll worry about that when I get to volume three. <laughs> so, so I've sort of left, um, I've left all the readers on, on a, uh, all the readers, that sounds great, doesn't it? Uh, I've left the readers uh, on a, a cliffhanger. So we'll, we'll, we'll see how that sort of presents itself in, in uh, the third volume, which I haven't even started yet, to be honest. I'm, I'm still not steep in this uh, Elizabethan thing. So, yeah. uh, so it's in the queue. Yeah, it is. It's one of them. So, uh, yeah. All right, cool. Well, I'll look forward to volume three as well. And of course, as usual, we'll link to Andy's work in the show notes so you can check these things out for yourself. But of course, on this occasion, we talked about me and the monkey volume one last time, but this time we had a conversation about what we could potentially do in terms of a mocap book to mm. cover together and to talk about how did we land on the fire clown, aka the winds of limbo? I can't actually remember. I think we just went, how about this? Didn't yeah, I, I believe it was one of those just crazy sort of like, let's do that one. Yeah. Moments. <laughs> yeah. After doing The Black Corridor, I suddenly became quite enamored with his 1960s sci-fi output, and mm. I wanted to cover another one. Mm. And I've been thinking about things like The Blood Red Game and The Sundered Worlds, but mm. I'd just picked up a copy, an American, I think a Lancer copy of The Fire Clown, with mm. a really super psychedelic, looks like someone has gone absolutely crackers waving a sparkler and someone's yes. put a, a, a long exposure on a, a on a camera and the uh, the cover is, is quite a spectacular image, even mm. though it's really abstract. And then I thought, well, you know, why not do The Winds of Limbo, stroke mm. The Fire Clown, because I haven't read it since I was probably a teenager. Mm. So that's what we happened upon. And you know what? I'm really glad we did. Because yeah. this is a great book, yeah. albeit with some caveats, um, <laughs> yes. which I'm, I'm sure yeah. we'll discuss as we go along. And I am reading from the marvellous Mayflower Fantasy mm. Edition with yes. the remarkable Bob Haberfield cover, which, as usual, with a Bob Haberfield cover, you can argue, to one degree or another, how relevant it is <laughs> to the contents of the book. Um, but just describe this cover. Uh, we have what appears to be a Tibetan demon riding the back of a crazed horse on on some multicolored clouds, with a beautiful um, sun in the background, with a swirling corona around it, mm. um, and that this this demon is waving a sword. There are no swords in the book, as far no. as I can remember. No. Um, and he doesn't really fit the description of the fire clown, other than that he's quite portly. 
Um, yeah. It's, but I love this. I love that picture. It's an absolutely incredible image. Yeah. And I think it's one of my favourite Bob Haberfield yeah. paintings. It's Definitely. amazing. And a quick tip out there, word to the wise, Bob's son, who, of course, we've had on the podcast, follow Bob Haberfield out on Instagram, Ben Haberfield. He is getting closer and closer and closer to the art book of his dad's work mm. that he's going to publish, possibly two. But he's done test prints of A3 prints of Bob Haberfield paintings. And mm. before long, this is going to be available as an A3 print. Oh, yeah. Oh, Oh, yeah. Yeah, that'd be I'll, that'd be spectacular. That'd be very I'll good. Be first in the queue. Yeah, and, and weirdly, even though Bob Haberfield covers are always a little bit difficult to pass when it comes to the contents of the book, hmm. this is one of the more sensible images. Yes, yeah. <laughs> because I was yeah, only looking at his cover facade of the dawn the other day and scratching my head and thinking, yeah. "What the fuck?" It's random <laughs> as fuck. <laughs> but this one is actually quite straightforward. But yeah, it doesn't bear a whole lot of resemblance to the contents no. of the book. And I think if you picked up this book. On the back of this cover, you probably would be a little bit puzzled by the contents in relation to the cover, but nevertheless, it's a cracking book. Yeah. But I'm, I'm just going to read the back. And, and the other thing is, as well, of course, this was retitled The Winds of Limbo from The Fire Clown. Why? Yeah. The, the title bears absolutely zero relevance to the contents of the book either. It, it's mentioned once, isn't it, in the whole book, I think, The Winds of Limbo. Is that, it, does that sentence, does, do those yeah. four words actually occur in the book? Yeah, quite early on. Oh, right, I must have missed that. I must yeah, have completely but, missed that. Is it, something, is it one of the Fire Clown's speeches? Uh, no, it's somebody talking about, um, I believe it's a description of how society is dragged along on The Winds of Limbo. Uh, oh, well, okay, fair enough. Yeah. Yeah, oh, I mean, right. I, I only remember that because I, I, since we originally talked about doing this, I've read this twice. Yeah, and it was the second time I picked it up uh, um, that it was in there. So yeah. I completely missed it. But mm. what, what's what's the back say? It says firestorm and space revolution. That oh bloody hell! It's black text on a dark purple background. <laughs> here's, here's a challenge. Yeah, uh, the fire clown raged. He shrieked. He laughed in ghastly mirth. A painted demon. A fat messiah. Fire clown, ever masked. He's not masked. Well, he wears makeup. No. <laughs> Led hysterical subterranean riots. No, he doesn't. No. Inciting the people to tear down and revolt. Well, that's the government's mm. line, not yes. necessarily the truth. Yes. So the back of this book is already propaganda. Yeah. For his own deadly power, or for galactic salvation, a grotesque political charlatan, or the only voice of sanity left on Earth. No one knew, but everyone was frightened. And there were those prepared to exploit that fear. Earth, with its savage class structure, was dying, complacently rushing towards a holocaust. Corrupt and weakened by an impotent administration, Earth trembled before the threat of solar war. Only Alan Powis and Helen Curtis saw sense in Fireclown's vision. Mm. But by then, he had vanished, and the greatest space chase in history was on. Okay, so the back of this book. Ooh, sort of, yeah, yeah, sort of. Um, I'm not entirely convinced the person who wrote the back of this book um, actually read it properly either. But you know, no. we'll give him we'll give him a pass. Yeah it's, yeah, it's closer in turn to the actual contents of the book than the cover is. But, Absolutely, but at least it's a pretty package. Yeah. yeah. Have you read the uh, the blurb on the? I think it's the Galance version. You know the ones with the yellow covers. The very very latest one. They've changed the names of the characters, and it's now Alan von Beck. 
Oh, yeah. And, and, really? and uh, yeah, and his dad, uh, sorry, his grandfather is Simon von Beck. So I think they're, they're trying to weave it into the whole mythos of the eternal champion. Um, and that, when you read the write up on that, is a completely different book. It sounds bonkers. You know uh, what? Uh, this, uh, Moorcock's revisionism. I'm all for it in some respects, but the constant need to draw everything back to the central source and the von Beckization hmm. of everything. I don't know. I don't really I don't really feel it. And no. turning turning this into a von Beck book seems hmm. tenuous at yeah. best. And actually there there are some things in the first chapter which I did actually pull the Golanx version published about ten, twelve years ago. Hmm. off the shelf it's included in one of the volumes which is give me a second traveling to utopia okay it's in traveling to utopia and well we'll get to it we'll get to it in a second and hmm. um, but should point out i just kicked off my prep for this just now about 15 minutes ago by listening to the blue oyster cult song hmm. the great sun jester hmm. um, after being reminded of it by dax the damned on instagram and i was aware of it but it's not one I've ever really listened to that much as I find Blue Oyster Cult a little bit hit and miss, and mm. I always have done. When mm. I like their stuff, I tend to really, really like it. Mm. But the one band who I find it difficult to listen to a whole album mm. all the way through, and this was on the album Mirrors from 1979, yeah. and I don't think I've ever listened to that album in its entirety anyway, because back in the day, I tended to buy albums based upon excellent album artwork yes <laughs> and the yeah. cover to mirrors is crap <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's just it's just a photograph of a wing mirror rubbish yeah it is but it is the first song mocock ever wrote with oyster cult hmm. the second being black blade on cultosaurus erectus the third being um better in the psychic wars on fire of unknown origin probably my favorite hmm. probably my favorite mocock collaboration with any rock band hawk uh, wind included hmm. that song i absolutely adore it so it, it did pass me by due to incredibly dull album artwork, but just listen to it. It's actually a good tune. Yeah. People should check it out. And it's, it may be one that's passed people by, even mm. people who are really into Mocock and Hawkwind. But yeah. yeah, decent track. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I was reading uh, some background stuff on Wikipedia about the Fire Clan, because obviously mm. you have to go to Wikipedia to get some somebody else's opinion. Hi. And um, they mentioned it on that. And I thought, oh, hang on a minute. And and I actually went and re-listened to the album and thought, oh, my God, you know, all these years, I'd, I'd, like you say, I probably hadn't listened to that album more than half a dozen times. Yeah. And then it gives you a whole new feeling, the fact that that track is actually based on this book. Yes. And it's like, oh, yeah, that's very cool. Yeah. yeah. Although written three years after, I think, the Fire Clown's second appearance in a Mococ story, mm. which we'll get to later on. Mm. And there was even a little bit of revisionism about the Fire Clown character in that second appearance in mm. a second Mocock story. Now, he may well have appeared in other Mocock stories between 1965 and between 76 or 7 when he appears in, well, Messiah at the End of Time, a.k.a. Mm. Constant Fire, a.k.a. The Transformation of Miss Mavis Ming. Take your pick. Mm. <laughs> which yeah. title you prefer. We'll take a look at that at the end. Mm. Now, before we pile into the book, um, I actually tried to find something vaguely sun or clown or jester related um, in terms of alcoholic beverages and ah. completely failed. So I looked in the cupboard and the best I could do was a bottle of cacao gin that's got an orange on the label that you could argue <laughs> looks a bit like a sun. Close enough for rock and roll. Yeah, yeah, I'm absolutely. drinking cacao gin 
which is uh, distilled with cacao in London, served with a twist of orange. From Hotel Chocolat, no less. How fucking oh, posh am I? Very nice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think someone got me this for Christmas the year before last. So, at last, it's made an appearance thanks to the Fire Clown. Okay, I'll Good stuff. A quick try of that. Yeah, delicious. Okay, so let's kick off with the Fire Clown then. I'm just going to read, uh, read a little bit of the introduction. Do it. It was a vast cavern. Part of it was natural. Part of it had been hollowed out by the machines of men. Some parts were deep in dancing shadow, and others were brilliantly illuminated by a great blazing mass. A roaring, crackling miniature replica of the sun itself that hung, constantly quivering and erupting, near the high roof. Beneath this blazing orb, a tall column rose up as if to meet it, and arms akimbo upon a platform at the top stood a gross figure, clad in ragged, harlequin costume. A soft, floppy, conical hat was jammed over his lank yellow hair. His fat, rounded face was painted white, his eyes and mouth adorned with smears of red, yellow and black, and on the ragged red jerkin stretched taut upon his great belly was a vivid yellow sunburst. It's a great image, that, isn't it? Mm. Below this gross harlequin, the dense crowd surrounding the column seized its movements and he raised an orange hand that seemed to shoot from his torn sleeve like fingers of flame. He laughed as if it was the sun had voiced unearthly humour. Speak to us, the crowd pleaded. Fire clown, speak to us. He seized his laughing and looked down at them with a peculiar expression, moving behind the paint. At length he bellowed, I am the fire clown. Speak to us. I am the fire clown, equipped for your salvation. I am the gift bearer, alive with a fire of life, from which the earth itself was formed. I am the earth's brother. A woman in padded dress, representing the body of a lion, cried shrilly, And what are we? You are maggots feeding off your mother. When you mate, it is like corpses coupling. When you laugh, it is the sound of the winds of limbo. Ah, there yeah. we are. Yeah. Yeah. How did I miss that first time? <laughs> why, why, shouted a young man with a lean, mean face and a pointed chin that could pierce a throat. He leapt exuberantly while his eyes glinted and looked. You have shunned the natural life and worshipped the artificial. But you are not lost. Not yet. What shall we do? sobbed a government official, sweating in the purple jacket and purple pantaloons of his rank, caught by the ritual enough to fidget and forget to stay in the shadows. His cry was echoed by the crowd. What shall we do? Follow me. I will reinstate you as children of the sun and brothers of the earth. Spurn me and you perish in your artificiality, renounced by nature on whom you have turned your proud backs. And again the clown broke into a laugh. He breathed heavily and roared his insane and enigmatic humour at the cavern roof. Flames from the suspended miniature sun stretched and shot out as if to kiss the fire clown's acolytes who laughed and shouted, surging about him, applauding him. The fire clown looked down as he laughed, drinking in their adoration. That's a pretty strong opener, isn't it? It is. It what is an very, incredibly vivid very imagery. Yeah, I mean, I must admit, when I, I sort of read that, uh, when he talks about the bit of, um, da, 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 where, oh, yeah, you are maggots feeding off your mother. And that whole thing about him being on the podium and the lights and, and all these people, and it made me think of Slipknot. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. and yeah. that song, Maggots, like, you know, and I'm thinking, yeah. yeah, this is so cool. This is really winding the, the whole crowd into a frenzy and, yeah. and building them up. And it's all that sort of, um, that mad hedonism going on in that, moment in time mm. it was really cool as usual 
I say as usual, this is only the second one we've done, but we're reading a 57, 58-year-old mm-hmm. science fiction book by Mocock. Okay, on this occasion, I think this is pure Mocock. There's no Hillary Bailey involved in this one, to my knowledge. Mm-hmm. But it's the, the, the discussion about him criticising the modern people for their obsession with artificiality. Mm. You know, it could have been current 10 years ago, but mm. it just gets more and more current mm. the more time goes by. Mm. And anybody who's thrown their phone to the opposite side of the room and gone off Twitter for a month <laughs> <laughs> recognises this. Yeah. And I've got to say that, you know, the something that's really pissing me off about Twitter at the moment is adverts, which keep telling me that, um, AI can enhance everything I do, and it's usually pictures. It's cartoon pictures of like hentai women with ginormous tits. Yes, absolutely. You know, it's, well, it's life is better for hentai women with enormous tits. Apparently, mm. I mean that is the future. <laughs> yeah, I mean don't get me wrong, they have their merits, but yeah, it's it's just we're getting to a, a really strange phase yeah. in our development at the moment i think and yeah. weirdly we're reading this while i think is it morocco where they're fearing 56 degrees coming up over the next yeah. month so That's right. so the world is burning mm. and the rich and the powerful are obsessed with ai and artificiality mm. i'm, mm. I'm kind of with a fire clown on this at this yeah. stage yeah yes. so fair play to him mm. that's a great opening but one of the caveats that i mentioned earlier on kicks in now because we meet a character called Junna mm. and some dated language that we can't really paper over and it's okay this is written in the mid-60s but I think even in the mid-60s we were at a time when use the use of Negro was mm. questionable even in the mid-60s mm. and Mocock did this a couple of times in his books in the 60s referring yeah. to large Negroes or suave Negroes or mm. I think he refers to a suave Negro in the Jerry Cornelius book. Had it been one instance of the word Negro, I think I could have let it fly. But he is constantly objectified as the Negro. Mm. Is so. So when there's some passing language where there's a reaction from Juno, it's not. It's not Juno reacted. It's the Negro reacted, and it's really jarring. Oh yeah, and yeah. As it happens, I looked at the version in the Golanx edition from the 2000s because, of course, Mocock is super fond of revising old material, mm. as we've already mentioned. And the only change is that Negro is decapitalized. That's right, yes. Because in this, it's capitalized. Yes. It's decapitalized yeah. in the revised version. And it really baffles me. And, and I know some people perhaps will um, bristle at people behaving like sensitivity readers, mm. but... If Moorcock can revise Elric Clobber in the Dreaming City 60th Anniversary Edition to make it less garish, hmm. but not revise this, well, I don't know. It's a choice, I suppose. Um, hmm. I would have been no way upset had this text been altered in the 2000s Golanx edition hmm. to change a term with negative connotations for modern readers. Yeah. I do reserve my upset for him divesting Elric of his incredible natty, dandyish southern barbarian attire just because <laughs> artists have portrayed him as wearing fucking black and looking yeah. all emo for the last 30 years yeah so i don't know but, but to be honest uh, all of that club is in this book because everyone seems to be wearing 
everything. They've all fallen in the dressing up box, haven't they? And it's like, it's it's crazy in this. But that thing about um, the description of him being the Negro really jarred with me because I didn't yeah. remember that at all. Yeah. And, um, and I le- think... later on, there's a Zimbabwean character. Yeah. Who's and described as the Zimbabwean. The Zimbabwean, yeah. So why why do that with, with Jonah? Yeah. Um, I mean, even even if he'd have done it, as you say, done it once, because you you know once you've read it once, you know who he is, and therefore yeah. you don't need to keep reiterating it. So yeah, I was a bit concerned about that, but hey, the sixties. <laughs> yeah, and th- I mean th- this this paragraph has two instances of capitalized Negro. Mm. It also has a description of his clothes. Yes, and I'm just I'm just not, I'm going to choose not to use that word. I'm going to substitute it. In a shadow cast by the dais, detached from the milling crowd, a gaunt black man stood as if petrified, his eyelids painted in checks of red and white, his mouth coloured green. He wore an extravagant yellow cutaway coat and scarlet tights. He looked up at the fire clown, and there were tears of hunger in his eyes. The man's name was Junna. And, yeah, so straight away, we've got some pretty outlandish garb. And <laughs> later on, the, the main protagonist, Alan, when he goes to... Um, Mayfair yeah. in London. The description oh, yeah. of his clothes is amazing. It's bonkers. That is yeah. a proper off to the dreaming city garb. That is, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> yeah, it's fabulous. I love yeah. it. But anyway, so um, reservations about that aside, Juna tears yeah. himself away from the hypnotic rantings of the fire clown, and heads upwards through the level of the si- levels of the city. And at this stage, I was thinking, is you know, because I know the back set talks about powers, but I was thinking, is is Juna going to be a really interesting? kind of character we're going to spend a lot of time with as it happens we don't really but on the way up he chats with an elevator operator we'll get a bit of information read the upcoming election cycle this is the first hint that actually what we're handling here is basically it's political thriller Mm. isn't it yeah political thriller and the dominant but waning solref party as they arrive in the upper levels so i'm just going to read a little bit from page 10 which kind of sets out the the political scenario at play the people began to shuffle out, some towards transport that would take them right across the vast plateau of the top level, some towards the distant buildings comprising the seat of government, various ministries, and the private accommodation of important statesmen, politicians, and civil servants. Built with the money of frightened businessmen during the war scares of the 1970s, the city had grown upwards and outwards, so it now covered almost two-thirds of what was once the country of Switzerland, one vast building. A warren with mountains embedded in it. It had begun as a warren of super shelters below the mountains. The war scares had died down, but the city had remained along with the businessmen. And when the world government was formed in 2005, it seemed the natural place for the capital. In 2031, in a bid to get full rights of citizenship for outworld settlers, the Solar Referendum Party had been formed. Four years later, it had risen to power. Its first act had been to declare that from henceforth, there were a solar government running the affairs of the Federation of Solar Planets. But since then, more than 60 years had passed. The Solrefs had lost much of their original dynamism, having become the most powerful conservative party in the Solar House. So we have that initial setup describes the kind of society that we're operating in. Mm. He has a smoke of proprietary marijuana cigarette. Marijuana cigarettes are all good. That's cool. And he makes his way to an office, which we find is far above the clouds of the world outside, to the office of Mr. Powers. So we've got this enormous, almost vertical society. We know now that the fire clown is um, holding court in the lower levels, while up at the top, the government, the ministers, the civil servants, 
and the people in control actually operate even above the mountains and above the clouds. So it's packed with set in detail, establishes quite an interesting world. Of course, this is written in 65, but it's one that's actually quite common to a newer form of post-apocalyptic science fiction that just seems to be everywhere now, doesn't mm. it? I yes. don't know if you've seen um, Silo on Apple TV. That's based on a series of books, apparently. Uh, so the hive struck, silo struck, shelter. It's like a little bit fallout. There are other examples, no doubt, but Moorcock brings like a nice sweaty British feel of class division to it all right up front, which yes. I think is always in these things, isn't yeah. it? But it but it always feels a little bit sweatier when it's <laughs> when it's British. Yeah. And, you know, that idea of the pyramidal society being directly mirrored by the physical structure is everywhere these days as well. Yeah. You know, in popular sci-fi movies, in television. Um, so I'm thinking a few years ago, I watched something on Netflix called Altered Carbon, which was oh, yes. exactly this. Yes. You know, the, the people in control actually lived in on levels above the clouds. Mm. Um, Elite, a battle angel, it's all in there. If you put it on a side, it's Snowpiercer. Yes. Um, it's shot through the hive concepts in mm. Warhammer 40,000. It's really, really common now. But I think at the time in, in the mid sixties, this is probably quite interesting. I'm, I'm just trying to think back to anything I've read that predates that, which has this kind of thing. And, the uh, Brave New World is probably the only one where there's a separate society like that. But yeah. I, I, I can't think of anything pre that. No. Uh, so something with that, the combination of the hive, the pyramidal society, mm. um, you know, the class divisions. It's uh, the, the only thing I can really think of in terms of the pyramidal society is the Nightland by William Hope Hodgson, but it's such mm. a long time since I've read it that I can't remember whether the actual class structural division is a feature in that or whether it's just pyramids in the Nightland. I've got to go back and read it now and find out, but it's such a ball to read. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever read the Nightland. <laughs> no, no, I haven't. <laughs> it's, uh, I love William Hope Hodgson to bits. I love yeah. everything I've read by him, but... The Nightland is really difficult to read because it's about a guy from something like the 16th or 17th century who gets catapulted through time to the end of the existence of the earth when the sun's gone out. And mankind lives in redoubts, they call them redoubts, and the big pyramidal structures. And outside of the redoubts, the earth is like overtaken by horrible beasties and terrible things. And But the redoubts are starting to lose their power. And, and he lives in the great, he finds himself in the great redoubt. And it's losing contact with other redoubts around the planet. Fascinating book, incredible idea, considering it was written in something like 1908, 1910 or something like that, because mm. he died in World War One, of course, William mm. Bob Hodgson. Fascinating idea, but he's written it in what he assumed was the style in which a 16th or 17th century bloke would write an account. And it's right. absolutely infuriating. Ev almost every single sentence starts with and. All <laughs> oh, right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's it's a maddening book to read, but it is uh, an incredible idea. Um, and funnily enough, a few years ago, someone did an RPG called Apocthulhu, huh. and it's a post-apocalyptic game inspired by the Cthulhu mythos, but it has four distinct settings in it, and one of them is the setting of the Nightland. And that's quite, you know, quite an interesting way to kind of oh. just get genned up on, on what that is all about. But yeah. anyway, gone off on a bit of a tangent there. But getting back to it, in Moorcock's inimitable style, all of this is just readable and pacey. Hmm. And straight away, we've got everything established. We've got the fire clown established in a really vivid fashion. Yeah, it's good stuff, you know, N-word notwithstanding. Yes. Try not to mention it. 
No, it, if we it, can get away with it. it, it does sort of drift out about a third of the way in. So I think we should be able to skip past that. Fortunately, it drifts out just when Juna drifts out. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Um, but so. Juna goes upstairs and he's meeting Alan Powis and his grandfather Simon Powis, the Minister for Space Transport. Mm. Now, Alan Powis is our key protagonist, of course. Yes. And I don't know what it is about this podcast, but it seems really common that our protagonists are civil servants. This, I think this yeah. is the third or fourth civil servant we've had in a non-Eternal Champion book that we've got yes. in this podcast. So Powis is a civil servant who's, whilst his grandfather is the Minister for Space Transport and an ambitious politician, oh. Alan is happy to be a civil servant. But we also found out a few more details as well about the relationship between him and his granddad. Oh. And Juna has been observing the fire clown for the minister, and he's observed multiple powerful figures from around other world governments, such as China and Israel, amongst the thronging masses enthralled by the fire clown. And Helen Curtis, our almost second protagonist, but she just ends up being more of a side character, really. She's not that well developed. Mm. No. But she's the minister's own niece and head of the radical liberal movement. So if we've got Sol Ref of the Tory party, the radical liberal movement, uh, well, maybe not today's Labour Party, a Labour Party of old, let's say. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, yes. Yeah, um, yeah. And she's preparing to make a run for the presidency, but she's also a little bit enraptured with the fire clown's message. And uh, when Juna departs, his report delivered, the two powers grapple with the fire clown issue. Hmm. And they don't really see eye to eye. When the door had closed, Alan said, I think you place too much importance on this character, Grandfather. He's harmless enough. Perhaps he could threaten society, but it's doubtful if he would. He seemed to have an obsession about him. No one else, in politics at least, seems so concerned. If the situation became serious, people would soon leave him or act against him. Why not wait and see? No, I seem to have an obsession, do I? Well, it may be that I'm the only man not blinded to what this fire clown represents. I've already drafted a bill which, if it gets passed, could easily put a stop to the fool's posturing. Alan laid his briefcase on the desk and sat down in one of the deep armchairs. But will it? Surely it isn't wise at this stage to back what could easily be an unpopular motion. The fire clown is an attractive figure to most people, and as yet, harmless. If you were to oppose him openly, it might cost you votes in the presidential election. You could lose it. Alan felt he had scored a point. He knew how important winning was to the old man. Since the formation of the Solar Referendum Party, a powers of every generation had held the presidential chair for at least one term of his life. A powers had, in fact, formed the first Sol Ref cabinet. Yet it was likely the powers would not be voted in, for public opinion was gradually going against the Sol Refs and tending to favour the more vociferous and dynamic RLM, which had grown rapidly in strength under Helen Curtis's fiery leadership. Throughout his life, Simon Powers had aimed at the presidency, and this would be his last chance to gain it. I have never sacrificed principles for mere vote-catching, Simon Powers said scornfully. It is unworthy of a Powers to suggest it, Alan. Your mother would have been horrified if she had heard such a remark coming from her own son. Though you have the look of a Powers, the blood, whoever gave it to you, is not Powers' blood. For a second, before he controlled himself, Alan felt pain at this remark. This was the first time his grandfather had referred to his obscure origins. He had been illegitimate, his mother dying soon after he was born. Though, in his grim way, Simon Powers had assured his grandson's education and position, he had always been withdrawn from Alan, caring for him but not encouraging friendship or love. 
His wife had died five years earlier, and she and Alan had been close. When Eleanor Powis died, Simon had begun to see a little more of Alan, but had always remained slightly distant. However, this remark about his bastardy was the first spoken in anger. Obviously, the matter of the presidency was weighing on his mind. Alan ignored the elder Powers' reference and smiled. City administration, if I may return to the original topic, isn't worried by the fire clown. He inhabits the disused lower levels and gives us no trouble. Doesn't threaten to come upstairs at all. Leave him alone, Grandfather. At least until after the election. Minister Simon went to the picture window and stared out into the twilight, his erect body silhouetted against the distant mountains. The fire clown is a tangible threat, Alan. He has admitted that he is bent on the destruction of our whole society, on the rejection of all its principles of progress and democracy. With his babbling of fire worship and nature worship, the fire clown threatens to throw us all back to disorganised and retrogressive savagery. Grandfather, the man isn't that powerful. You place too much importance on him. Simon Powers shook his head, his heavy hands clasping behind him. I say I do not. Ugh. So, a strained relationship, which at first mm. just seems like a little bit of character dynamics, but as it turns out, <laughs> it's, it's actually a core tenet of the entire book and the yes. dynamics of the entire book, as we'll find out a little bit later on. But the minister considers the fire clown to be an existential threat. Alan's unconvinced. After this lively discussion, they fail to agree. So Alan heads home for his manservant to tell him that Helen Curtis is waiting in the living room and another complex relationship is unveiled. Alan and Helen have had an affair previously. And the cousins, good mm. lord, mind you, could be worse. It's been mother and son in other of Mocock books, hasn't it? So oh, yes. we find that Minister Powis is using the fire clown really as a pretext to apply harsher controls to the lower level. It all sounds very silo-ish. It does, you know, doesn't this, it? This, is, this has all been used over and over and over again. Every time I'm reading this, I'm thinking, oh, well, of course it is. Then forgetting that this is 57 years old, yeah. and this is now just a, a trope. <laughs> it's, yeah. just, it's just a trope in these kind of things. But Helen's opposing this. She's pretty miffed that not only the lower <laughs> levels, but the fire clown himself is being victimized. And Alan feels stuck in the middle and decides it's time he got close to the phenomenon and heads to the lower levels to see himself what all the fuss is about. And we've already talked about kind of the establishment of the world, but it once again wastes no time establishing the root of the story, the dynamics, the political conflicts. Is the fire clown just a political MacGuffin at the heart of a political drama? Is he a true threat? That's it. We've got it all established in the space of about four or five pages. Mm. And, you know, it's it's typical brisk Mocock writing. Is the fire clown really a threat? Well, I guess we'll find out, won't we? And we, we, don't, we don't really find out until the very end of the bloody book anyway, do we? No, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> yeah, yeah. there's a few twists, let's say. Al, I, I do find it amusing when Alan heads down. We don't really realise this until he goes down, but he's barely ever gone out. <laughs> he's barely yeah. ever gone out, except when, when he goes on holiday. <laughs> yes. That's the yeah. only time he's ever left the upper levels. Yes. So he's like a babe in the woods, and he goes down to these lower levels with a, a frisson of excitement and danger. It's just so cool that our hero is, well, I say hero, he's, um, he's constantly on the verge of getting beaten up. <laughs> yes. Every, every time he goes out and actually does get beaten up on a couple of occasions. He gets a couple of slaps, doesn't he? For sometimes for absolutely no reason whatsoever. <laughs> yeah. Wrong, wrong place at wrong time. Yeah. Or as, as 
I mean, we'll get to it later on, but he's, he kind of gets set up as a patsy mm. <laughs> later on, and that, that gets him a booting as yeah. well. Yeah. This is, uh, he stepped boldly into the ill-lit corridor named, incongruously, Orange Blossom Road, and then advanced cautiously until he saw a sign which read, Escalators down, five levels. He rode the escalators into the chilly depths of the city of Switzerland, feeling as if he were descending into some kind of frozen hell, and at the same time making a mental note that if people were indeed inhabiting the lower levels, then city administration should, out of humanity, do something about the heating arrangements. <laughs> he wished he had some warmer clothing, but that would have meant applying to Garment Centre, since he rarely went outside to save on vacation. It's like, then, it's like vouchers for TK Maxx, isn't it, yeah, or something like that? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Here's your Peacock's voucher. <laughs> yeah. And then all necessary apparel was supplied. So is, is this like a post-want-post-need society as well, where you just get, you just get sensed in front of that? Yeah, it does appear to be like that because uh, obviously all the needs of the the rich are taken care of. Yeah. But it's almost like you, you know. I think there's one point when he 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 chucks his clothes into like almost like a garbage disposal thing. That's right. To it either does. be cleaned or or burnt. You never quite sure which. I don't think. Yeah. And when he goes to the slums of Mayfair later on, yeah, there's a description of why Mayfair has slums. Yes. And, and why nowhere else does. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, yeah, I, I it, love it just appears to be like a post want, post need society. Yeah. Even though the, the level to which your needs are catered to depends to some degree on status, mm. and the level to which your um, surroundings are pleasant is uh, certainly an issue. But otherwise, you get fed, you get watered, and you get clothes, unless it's like Snowpiercer, in which case you get given a brick of horrible jelly, probably <laughs> made out of people. <laughs> Once a day. Yeah. 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 Who knows? We don't know. Don't go to that level of detail. Nope. <laughs> but as he advanced deeper, he became aware of a growing warmth and a thick, unpleasant smell that he gradually recognised as being, predominantly, the smell of human perspiration. In spite of his revulsion, he sniffed it curiously. So, as you go down, there's no air con, there's no air freshness. That's another thing. As he walked slowly down the ramp leading to the notorious first level, reputed to be the haunt of undesirables well before the fire clown made his first appearance, he saw with a slight shock that the light was dancing and had an unusual quality about it. As he drew closer, his excitement increased. Naked flame. The light came from a great burning torch which also gave off uncontrollable heat. He approached it as close as he dared and stared at it, marvelling. He had seen recordings of the phenomenon, but this was the first time. He withdrew hastily as the heat produced sweat from his forehead, walking along a corridor that reminded him, with its dancing naked light, of the fairyland of his childhood fantasies. On reflection, he decided it was more like the Ogre's castle, but so delighted was he by this wholly new experience that he forgot caution for a while. It only returned as he rounded another corner and saw that the roof was actually composed of living rock, so moist that it dripped condensed water. Alan Powis was not an unsophisticated young man, yet this was so remote from his everyday experience that he could not immediately absorb it on any intellectual level. There's also a great bit further on where he comes across a bolt. <laughs> he comes across yeah. a bolt on a door. And he's yeah. never seen a bolt before. Yeah, doesn't so, know how to work it. It's like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so he's, he's led a, a very, very sheltered existence. I like that because it says like he's not an unsophisticated young man, but obviously yeah. his sophistication is is at a very different level. It's yeah. all this V screen stuff that they talk about, and 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 uh, you know this the messaging and the going up and down on escalators and stuff like that. Yeah, 
because he doesn't even recognise fire when he sees it, which no. is the crazy thing, isn't it? He's only ever seen it in pictures. Yeah. Yeah, yeah of course, this being a sci-fi novel, there are some amusing names for television as well. Oh, yeah. there. Is it laser, yes. laser vision or laser screens or something? Yeah, yeah. There's, a, there's, there's a few different ones, isn't there? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, because they end up watching telly later on in yeah. a Scientology monastery in space, <laughs> <laughs> which I had a good laugh at. But we, yeah, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Oh, we'll yes. get to that. We'll get to that. <laughs> so he, he finds the place where he thinks the, the fire clown is hanging out, the warren of tunnels, and he hears people talking, but he's denied entry by a, a terrifying visage, a man apparently with no skin. Mm. And this is Corso, mm. who describes himself as the fire clown's um, does he say is doesn't say henchman? He says right hand man. No, he does describe yes. himself as his henchman, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. And but he explains he's got synthetic skin, but it has no pigmentation, so he does have skin. It just looks like he ain't got no skin, which is a strong look, I think. Yeah, um, it's not one everyone could carry off, is it? No, not necessarily. So disappointed but determined, Alan sods off back upstairs. Not before he has a brief encounter with Juna because he thinks about going back, but Juna pops up out the shadow and says, "I won't bother if I were you." And then hmm. bloody disappears again. So back up top, he meets with his boss, Carson. We find out that actually Alan is an assistant director in this branch of the civil service. And his boss, Carson, the director, is the civil servant that's leading on this policy that is being pushed through. A policy to cut off the 10 lowest decks from the upper decks. Hmm. And Alan isn't convinced. He thinks that cutting off the fire clown and his followers will have unintended sociological effects and trigger unrest. And I think we've also found that Helen Curtis knows about this as well, and she's getting quite agitated about this. Hmm. And so he goes to see his granddad to take it up with him, but we bump into Juna again and Helen's brother, Denham, and we get our second incredible description of somebody's clothes. Yes. This, this is one of my favourite descriptions I've ever come across in a mock-up book. Curtis dressed with challenging bad taste. His clothes were a deliberate attack, a weapon which he flaunted. They proclaimed him an iconoclast impatient of any accepted dogma, whether reasonable or not. Above the striped and polka-dotted trappings, draping his lean body, was a firm, sensitive head. The heavy powers head with calm eyes, hopeful, seeming to be aware of detail and yet disdainful of it. Curtis's eyes were fixed on the future. I just love that description of someone dressing with challenging bad taste and using his clothes as a deliberate weapon, which he flaunts. Yeah. Fucking brilliant. Yeah, it almost gives me a migraine just even trying to imagine what that's like. Yeah, and the only thing I could think is, if I had my time again and I, I was adequately shaped to get away with it, <laughs> I would dress to challenge an attack. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I wish I had, yeah. In another life, perhaps. In another life. So we found out Denham's a radical, but he prefers to remain a powers and change the Sol Ref party from within. So he's kind of like a, a centre-right, mm. reasonable Tory, I suppose. Mm. But there's uh, a pretty great exchange with Alan and Junna. And Alan asks, what were you doing in the lower levels last night? Keeping an eye on the fire clown, Junna said shortly. For grandfather? Yes, of course. Why is he so malevolent towards the fire clown? He seems harmless to me. Has Grandfather any special knowledge that the public doesn't have? Alan was only partly interested in what he himself was saying. The other half of his mind was wondering about the elections. And Helen. Juno shook his head. I don't think so. It's a question of your point of view. 
Minister Powers sees the fire clown as a threat to society and its progress. Others simply see him as a romantic figure who wants to return to a simpler life. That's why he's such a popular cause with so many people. We all wish life were simpler. We're suckers for the kind of simple answer to our problems that a man like the fire clown supplies. Simple answers, sure enough, Alan nodded, but hardly realistic. Who knows, Jonah said tersely. Is Grandfather going to use the fire clown as a platform? I expect so. It will be taken for granted that whoever wins will encourage the expansion bill, so the other main dispute will be the fire clown. But it's out of all proportion. Why should the fire clown become a major issue? Jonah smiled cynically. Probably because the politicians want him to be. That answer satisfied Alan, and he added, Hitler, as I remember, used the Jews. Before him, Nero used the Christians. Minority groups are always useful. They turn people's attention away from real issues, which the politicians have no control over. So Miss Curtis and Minister Powers are using the fire clown. Is that it? One in support, one against. People will take an interest in a battle over such a colourful figure and forget to question other policies. It sounds almost unbelievable, yet it happens. History proves that. What does Grandfather plan to do about the fire clown if he gets to power? Maybe nothing, Jonah said. Maybe nothing at all, once he's in power. Then he smiled brightly. No, it's not fair. After all, I am Simon Powers' private secretary. He really is deeply concerned about what the fire clown represents rather than the man himself. The apparent return of loyalty in Jonah brought an awakening echo in Alan. He nodded. Perhaps we don't do any of them justice. I was forgetting they are both Powers's with a strong sense of family honour. Jonah coughed. I think I'd better go over to the solar house myself. Can I arrange an appointment for you to see your grandfather? No, don't bother. Are you going to see the Fire Clan's audience tomorrow? Probably. I may see you there. This is one of a, a collection of pages in this book which essentially encapsulate British politics mm. in incredibly well. It's the second more pure, in inverted commas, sci-fi story political tones from Mocock in the 60s that we've covered on this podcast. And again, it just feels incredibly contemporary. Yes. I mean, especially covering up uh, uh, bad news with other bad news, yeah, which has caps. happened. Yeah, which has happened so many times in, uh, in the last... 15 20 years that you know you start to you start to think it's a normal part of politics which of course it, it isn't but, um yeah. which shouldn't be yeah and mm. there's also that thing about we're more in the last five years than i think ever in the last 50 years the idea of a political firebrand being mm. identified as a menace and the message around them almost being created by the people who oppose them in order to denigrate them and pull them down. And, you know, we've seen various examples of that. I don't think we'll go into detail about them, but we've seen them on both sides of mm. the Atlantic. And yes. At least three examples, two on this side, one on the other side, all with very different results. Yeah. But all essentially following the same kind of pattern. And he's writing this in his mid to late 20s. And as I said before, there's no indication it was co-written with Hillary Bailey, but it's similarly concerned, like the Black Corridor was, with populism and the effects mm. of populism yes. and how the people at the heart of populism are weaponized by one side or the other to achieve certain ends. And I really wish he'd done more like this because much as I love his eternal champion stuff, much as I love his fantasy, this stuff's really got teeth. It's got yeah. teeth in a way that his fantasy stuff doesn't tend to have. Yeah. It's, it's his, when he drifts into the politics, 
there is um uh it's almost like with the Jerry Cornelius stuff when he when he talks about um uh, how society he can see society changing in the future so that you've got the hermaphrodite nobody cares yeah. everyone can do whatever they want to do and stuff and it's it's really percent it's on point you know and he and he with his politics stuff he he can see the way um the political pendulum is swinging mm. and the way people are shifting and happy to be shifted with it if it suits their own predispositions. And I mean, that, that works so well now with the, the idea of social media, which of course wasn't even a thing when this was out. Mm -hmm. But you see social media now, people get torn to shreds on Twitter or elevated to godhood, or they become social influencers or, uh, you know, and it's almost like the, the some sort of like uh, teenage kid who's got a YouTube channel and has 3 million followers is more powerful than the prime minister in yeah. terms of how what effect they have you know yeah if a message gets amplified yeah whether it's true or not it becomes a form of truth um, yes post-truth world whatever the fuck it is we're living in yeah um, you know one thing i will say about social media is had it existed in 19 or in, had it existed in the 80s i might have been more inclined to check out mirrors Fabulous to cult, but yeah. you know, you, I don't know. It, 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 it would be a, a a tough price to pay. Yes. Yeah. But anyway, Alan realizes that he has a job to do, and his boss Carson wants results. So, ironically, despite the fact that Alan is at this stage where he kind of supports Helen in her support for the Fire Clown and finds him an interesting character and actually identifies with some of the messages, he's actually at the heart of the department that are doing the job to seal off the lower levels huh. and his boss Carson wants results. So he goes to see the head of city works, Tristan Butula, who like Junna, it says is a Zimbabwean, huh. but he gets spared. He, he gets referred to as Zimbabwean and huh. gets spared uh, the dodgy epithet at this stage and actually for the rest of the book. But um, Butula is similarly impressed with the plans to seal off the lower levels and relocate the inhabitants. And he and Alan have a fairly, robust discussion about it all and then things go slightly pear-shaped yes and i've got a few bullet points here the current president decides that he's going to step down therefore the maneuvering about presidential campaigns starts to rapidly gain traction and tristan baula has responded to the plan by going public with it and sharing it with the public and the media he's so un unimpressed with it he basically blows it wide open 25% of Alan's civil service department don't show up for work. Yeah. This civil disturbance that they actually feared has already kicked off just because of this plan escaping, oh. being leaked into the mainstream. So, oh yeah, political thrill, we've got leaks, we've got the works. So Alan, anxious about civil disturbances, decides to pop back down there and see what's going on. He returned to his flat and changed into the nondescript suit he had worn earlier. He had some trouble getting there for the corridors were packed. Angry and excited conversations were going on all over the place. Ordered discipline had given way to disorganised hysteria, and it rather frightened him to see ordinary human beings behaving in a manner which, to him, was a rejection of their better selves. Outside in the jostling corridor, he was carried by the crowd to the elevators, and had to wait for nearly a quarter of an hour as the mob's impatience grew. There just weren't enough elevators to take them all at once. Down, down, down the levels into level nine, and they're milled down the escalators and ramps. Alan, unable to go back now, even if he had wanted to. The smoke from the torches of the first level, the smell of sweat, the atmosphere of tension, the ululating roar of the crowd all attacked his senses, 
and threatened to drug his brain as the crowd entered a huge cavern, which, he knew, had once been part of an underground airstrip during the years when the city had first been planned. Again, fantastic imagery. Mm. And at last he saw the fire clown standing upon the tall column that served him as a dais, seeming to balance his huge bulk precariously on the platform. There above him, Alan saw the spluttering mass of the artificial sun. He remembered having heard of it. The fire clown had made it, or had it made, and somehow controlled it. What's this? What's this? The fire clown was shouting. Why so many? Has the whole world suddenly seen the error of its ways? There were affirmative shouts from all around him as the crowd answered, somewhat presumptuously, for the rest of the planet's millions. The fire clown laughed, his gross bulk wobbling on the dais. Thousands upon thousands of people were packing into the cavern, threatening to crush those already at the centre. Alan found himself borne towards the dais, as the fire clown's reverberating laugh swept over them. No more, the fire clown cried suddenly. Corso, tell them they can't come in. Tell them to come back later, we'll be suffocated. The fire clown seemed baffled by the crowd's size, bewildered perhaps by its own power. Bewildered perhaps by his own power. Yet was it his own power, Alan wondered. Was not the mob identifying the fire clown with something else, some deep-rooted need in them, which was finding expression through the clown? But it was immaterial to speculate. The fact remained that the fire clown had become the mob's symbol and its leader. Whatever he told them, they would do, unless, perhaps, he told them to do nothing at all. The mob was beginning to chant, Fire clown, fire clown, fire clown, speak to us. How shall the world end, he cried. In fire, in fire. How shall it be born again? In fire. And the fire shall be the fire of man's spirit, the fire clown roared. The fire in his brain and his belly. Too long as the world lived an artificial nourishment. The nourishment of processed food. The nourishment of words that have no relation to reality. The nourishment of ideas that exist in a vacuum. We are losing our birthright. Our heritage faces extinction. He paused as the mob moved like a mighty restless tide. Then he continued. I am your phoenix, awash with flames of life. I am your salvation. You see flames above. He raised an orange-painted hand to the spluttering orb near the ceiling of the cavern. You see flames around you, he indicated the torches. But these fires only represent the real flames, the unseen flames which exist within you, and the mother of life which sweeps the heavens above you. The sun. Yes, the sun. Billions of years ago our planet was formed from the stuff of the sun. The sun nurtured life. It finally nurtured the life of our earliest ancestors. It has nurtured us since. But does modern man honour his mother? No, our ancestors worshipped the sun for millennia. Why? Because they recognised it as the mother of life. Without this sun, man could have never been born on earth. The earth itself could not have been formed. And it goes on. Uh And the crowd get more and more whipped up, turn the hostile chants towards the city council. And at this point, Alan's getting a little bit concerned about all this. And to Alan's consternation, he sees Helen's there. And she's actually carrying a placard fully enthralled to the sociological tides at play. And he attempts to talk around to his rather middle ground, <laughs> reasonable <laughs> position, which Alan manages to maintain for almost the entire book as she's fully engaged. And yeah, even at the one point grabbing the placard off her, well, that'll come back. Yes. That'll come back to haunt him. Indeed. And the parallels with the Black Corridor are here again, but sort of inverted. And we have the bump scene in um, the Black Corridor where actually it's uh again a political firebrand but also an out and out racist right-wing enoch powell style mm. nut job who incites 
this angry crowd in their hatred of the other. In this case, it's the, the fire clown at one point actually says, do nothing. But the crowd are too far gone by this point. The crowd are using him as their, their totem. And they end up turning mob anyway. Riots ensues, the mob battles police as it moves up the level to occupy the council offices. As a result, Minister Powers has got everything he needs now to brand the fire clown a menace to society. And Alan's attempts to defend the fire clown fall on deaf ears. They have a massive row. Alan's parentage is weaponized by his grandfather. The part on an ill note. Alan bumps into Jenner on the roof, who he's happily now just referenced as Zimbabwean, and yes. observed the tail end of the uh, of the disturbances. And again, Alan defends the fire clown, but Jenner is with Powis Senior and believes that the fire clown is a menace. <laughs> Unfortunately for Alan, he goes over and puts the news on. <laughs> And there he is. Yeah, <laughs> there, there he is, identified in the media as a figurehead for the anti-fire clown policies of the council right, right down to being videoed grabbing Helen's placard and is portrayed as a council bully boy that sets the police on the protesters. Oh, and when he goes out, it gets beaten up. <laughs> yeah. Yes, the slapping number one. Yeah. <laughs> ah, brilliant. But he does get saved by Tristan Baula. Poor Alan. He's doing his absolute best to be the reasonable middleman in all of this. And the media just, obviously, has been followed. Has he been set up? We, d we never really find out if he's been set up at this point or whether the media have just jumped on opportunity because they've seen someone from the council uh, yes. getting, into, getting into a row with Helen Curtis. And, you know, but is, is it one of those situations where, I don't know, like that um, situation in Leeds where the media said that, oh, I, don't know, I can't remember what it was, that uh, a Labour protester had punched a Tory MP's staffer, and mm. it all turned out to be complete bullshit and mm. a, fa a media fabrication, but it was still leapt upon with great hunger by the likes of Laura Koonsberg and people like that. So we've got this, um, got this wonderful this is, stuff going on with like sort of media manipulation. Yeah, this is the sort of uh, first hint in the book that you get of that. Mm. But then as it progresses, you see exactly how willing they are to twist the story depending on which way the wind's blowing yeah, yeah. And, and and what suits them to actually tell us as, as a as a narrative and uh, I, I find that really interesting as well because i don't know about you but i mean as a kid i didn't really pay a lot of attention to the news i mean you know my mom and dad read the newspapers they were always lying around the house and things yeah. like that but you know and i didn't want i didn't want to watch the nine o'clock news i you know i was better things to do but maybe this were this maybe this isn't new. Maybe this has been going on for a long time in terms of media spin on stories. But oh god, yeah. But but we only see it now because it's amplified so massively because it, there is once again social media. There is such a big base of stories being mm -hmm. spread online and print on TV everywhere. You can't really get away with it now, and it just and a story flicks into being and then burns out, and then another one flicks in, and then another one burns out, and they chase things in circles until they get bored with it and then go somewhere else. And reading this, I I, I felt that yeah, that is exactly what is still happening now, yeah. only on a more amplified manner. Yeah, and we see more examples of this later on as, yeah. as the media becomes a more powerful player in this story. Yes, in in actually fixing the narrative. But it's interesting that point you make about being a kid. I mean, you know, when I was a kid, I wanted to watch Clapper Castle, or yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I wanted to stop going to Cubs so I could watch the BBC Two six o'clock sci-fi movie that they had on every Tuesday. Mm. I, I wasn't interested in the news, but the, there's a real temptation 
these days, I think, because of the 24-hour news cycle, for us to be more judgmental of mm. news, particularly mm. the BBC as the national broadcaster. You know, I stopped watching Question Time year, years ago, but I, I see the, the ranting about Question Time and, and, and kind of how fixed the audience is. But it depends on who you're responding to. Mm. People on the right think the audience is fixed in favour of the left, and people on the left think the order is fixed in favour of people on the right. We have social media, so we'd like to think that actually we get fact-checking in real time, and we do, but it's really, really hard to figure out what the facts are because it's uh. absolutely polluted by opinion, uh. which is a real problem. But there's this temptation to think that the BBC has been polluted by more populist right-wing governments in uh. recent years. And of course, in America, in the USA, for our, our um, American friends who listen, you may have the same arguments about, I don't know, for example, CNN or particularly Fox News being an editorial uh. mouthpiece for right-wing politics. But actually, the fact that we are in a situation where we have different opinions through social media actually contradicting the mainstream narrative, was it ever any different? Were the BBC in the 1970s not a mouthpiece for the establishment? Of course they were. Uh. Of course they were. They were the, more, probably more so than they are now. Uh. But at the time, there was no alternative voice. No, you know, we had the newspapers and we had the TV. And okay, if you leaned left, you might read left leaning red tops broadsheets, but you really didn't have the access to all the information you got now. But I think the the you know what what he's writing here is pretty clear. He's, he's not projecting some kind of future view of the media. No, this this is he's he's in his twenties and he's got a pretty acute handle yeah. on on what all this stuff is all about, and we see it play out in. The subsequent chapters and oh. not going to go through these chapters in as much detail as we have the first few because we've already been recording an hour and we're barely a third of the way through <laughs> but um the plot does thicken and um, the council convene minister powers and the chief of police declare the fire clown a major menace the media support that and then they announce that a cache of nuclear weapons and in this world nuclear weapons have been mm. banned for decades has been found on level 10 and the finger is pointed at the fire clown so of course you've got the people in the council who were defending the fire clown and all of a sudden the government the establishment have got a weapon with which to beat the opposition saying haha but look your political firebrand is a major menace and now we have the evidence so this is weapons of mass destruction isn't it yeah yeah, yeah. Absolutely. wnds yeah. yeah the fire clown has got wnds yeah so they all be led down to the lower levels alan still curious still keeps getting himself into trouble for the right reasons i think um, having a council assistant director ID goes down to see for himself and, and, and actually starts to himself question, have I misjudged the fire clown? Uh. And long story short, he finds a closed circuit TV system and snoops on the fire clown, Corsa and the mysterious woman in the Warren-like tunnels, planning their escape by a boat, which they assume to mean space boat. <laughs> Mm, yeah. <laughs> that's the word that's used Spare um, <laughs> that does and, sort of make sense when when you you see how they launch them but yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah it does they're planning their escape and whilst they don't explicitly say they're escaping before they set off weapons or anything like that they are trying to escape so alan is now thinking you know what the hell's going on and as this happens the fire clowns farmer domain and the lower nine or ten levels of the city are consumed in flame and alan barely escapes with his life although along the way finds out what a boat is so mm. what is going on we are in full-on political thriller mode mm. 
and it's all a bit fishy. It gets fishier when Minister Powis is pleased. He's pleased mm. with developments. And he he's, is. He's, he's a bit puffed up like a peacock, quite happy about all this. Uh, the support for the Fire Cloud is impacted by the nuclear weapons fines and the incineration of the lower levels and the deaths of many people. And despite her having previously attained almost folkloric status because of the media reports and Alan Powis trampling and pulling her uh, placard off her, this all affects Helen's chances at the presidency. And now we find Simon Powis, Grandad Powis, Minister Powis, designed that himself. And we're at a point now where ideas are just flying thick and fast. Oh. It's, as usual, it's Michael Moorcock, so it's briskly written, but there are so many ideas flying around here. And Alan posits the fire clown made of headed into orbit to hurl up with some weird monks at a monastery on an old space station. And I did laugh at this. Yes. I did laugh when they arrive and the monk who greets them identifies himself as Auditor Kurt. Yeah. <laughs> Auditor? Yeah. yeah. And then, um, and then he, he lets them in and they go through a room where a bunch of brothers, with the help of a weird machine, are exercising engrams from their brothers so they can yeah. be declared clear yeah. <laughs> and join the ranks of auditors. Yeah. I'm like, hang on a minute. This is written in 1965, right? Now, of course, L. Ron Hubbard was already into his, mm. you know, Dianetics and all this business, but Scientology wasn't as it is now. No. This is written in 65, and Moorcock's given us Scientologists in space. <laughs> Absolutely amazing. And they even refer to, they refer to their original founder by uh, a, a saintly name, but it's not his real name. Mm. And it's, well, hang on a minute. So Moorcock predicts, right, in 1965, that L. Ron Hubbard's Scientology will last into the 21st century. Mm. But he just kind of gets the form slightly wrong. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Actually, what he ends up doing is sort of predicting a space monastery a la Alien 3. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very much, yeah. yeah. I, think, I think in 1965, if you'd have told Moorcock that Scientology would take the, the shape that it takes now, he probably would have found it far-fetched. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, it turns out the fire clown is there. And many revelations lay ahead of Alan at this point. And it gets even more interesting. The fire clown takes him on a journey on his odd little ship, the Pi Meson. Uh. He takes him on a journey into the heart of the sun and beyond to the center of the galaxy. It's all trippy as fuck. Mm. He's philosophizing while he's doing it. Yeah. And all I could think at this point is that it's like Dr. Who on acid this. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it reminded me in bits as well about, uh, do you remember UFO from the 70s? Mm. Yeah. And, and, they used to have that stuff on um, like Moonbase Alpha and you'd have yeah. all of those uh, sort of like lava lampy type things. Yeah. And when he's talking about the, the different colored balls floating about and stuff, I was thinking, well, that's, that's like that. Yeah. You know? it's, it's, it's absolutely amazing. And yeah. we found out later is this, the Pi Meson is actually capable of transcending space and time. Mm. So you've got this guy, the fire clown, who's a mysterious figure. He has two companions, Corsa and a lady friend called, Cornelia. So Corso and Cornelia in the Fire Clown in this weird spaceship that can transcend space and time. And he takes these two on a journey and blows the minds. And all I'm thinking is, like, this is so weird, trippy, fucked up, transgressive Doctor Who mm. scenario. But of course, at the time, Doctor Who's only two years old at that point. So it probably is 
probably a coincidence, maybe. But there's only three channels on telly at the time, yes. and Mocock's probably watching Doctor Who. Oh, yeah. And, of course, at that point, the nature of the Doctor as a Time Lord is years away, so maybe it's coincidental, maybe. But I had a quick read of A Messiah at the End of Time earlier. Oh, uh, okay, yeah. Which is the Fire Clown turning up in the End of Time stories, a.k.a. Constant Fire, a.k.a. Hmm. the transformation of Miss Mavis Ming. Come back to that at the end, because it's quite interesting. But on the return, Alan, still unconvinced by the Fire Clown's rhetoric despite the journey, but back at the monastery, waiting to watch a newscast with a group of monks, he has a quiet moment with Corso that reveals some background to the Fire Clown. Now, it's not all the background he'll get revealed about the Fire Clown, but it's the first little snippet. Yep. Corso came and sat next to him. Alan was getting used to his apparently skinless face. <laughs> well, he said good-naturedly, did your voyage enlighten you? In a way, Alan admitted. But not in the way he intended, I think. Helen smiled, smiled a trifle wistfully, as if she wished the fire clown had convinced them. How did he hit on the discovery that enables him to travel so easily? And such dangerous parts, Alan said. Call it inspiration, Corso answered. I'm not up to understand him either, you know. We were co-pilots on an experimental ship years ago. Something went wrong with the ship. The steering devices locked and pushed us towards the sun. We managed, narrowly, to avoid plunging into the sun's heart and went into orbit, but we were fried. Refrigeration collapsed slowly. I suffered worse in some ways. It took my skin off, as you can see. My fellow pilot, the fire clown to you, these days, didn't suffer so badly physically, but something happened to his mind. You'd say he was mad. I'd say he was sane in a different way from you and me. Whatever happened, you worked out the principle for the pie meson in the Martian hospital. We were rescued quite by chance by a very brave crew of a freighter, which had gone slightly off course itself. If that hadn't happened, we'd both be dead now. We were in hospital for years. The clown pretended amnesia, and I did the same. For some reason, we were never contacted by spaceflight research. Hmm. So the, there were victims of an accident. We'll find mm. out a little bit more about that later on as well. And we'll come back more to it, I'm sure, but it establishes, and we saw a little taste of this earlier on, when the crowd were rushing into the cavern, the fire clown almost got anxious because he was losing control of the situation. Mm. So is yes. this is this populist figure, this firebrand, this philosophizer, but he is he is a person, is a is a man, is a deeply changed man, but mm. he is a man, which which takes us further away from this wild cover which portrays him as some kind of um Vishnu like God or something. Mm. So we've had hints throughout that although the fire clown is powerful, almost mythic mythic figure. He has these moments of doubt and disappointment, but he's driven by his experiences to a rate and influence. And then they get on to watch the news, and it's a, a familiar story as the media disassembles the populist figure and kind of gloatingly sows disappointment to the masses, almost as if to say, this is who you were rooting mm. for. This is mm. the man you were rooting for. He's an absolute menace. The laser screen came to life, a news broadcast. The newscaster bent eagerly towards the camera. It's fairly sure who the next president will be, folks. Simon Powers. The one man to recognise the peril that the world is in from the infamous fire clown's insane plot to destroy the world is top of the station's public opinion poll. His niece, the only strong opponent in the elections which begin next week, has dropped right down. Her violent support of the fire clown hasn't helped a bit. Rumour circulates that Miss Curtis and Minister Powers's grandson, Alan Powers, have disappeared together. Strange that two people who were seen publicly fighting in the recent riots should have teamed up. 
shot off Simon Powers in his home, a smug expression on his powerful old face. Reporter. Minister Powers, you were the first to discover the bomb plot. How did it happen? Powers. I suspected the fire clown from the start. I don't blame people for being duped by his talk. We're all humans, after all. But a responsible politician has to look below the surface. Reporter, murmuring. And we're all very grateful. I made sure that a constant check was kept on his activities, Simon Powers continued, and thus was able to avert what might have been a terrible crime. The ultimate crime, one might say. Even now, the threat of this man still trying to bombard the earth from some secret hiding place is enormous. We must be wary. We must take steps to ensure his capture, or, failing that, to ensure our own defence. Quite so. Thank you, Minister Powers. Everything's calm again in Swiss City, announced the newscaster as he faded in. And we're back to normal after the riots and subsequent fire, which swept 16 levels yesterday. The fire clan's victims number over 300 men, women, and little children. We were all duped, folks, as Minister Powers has pointed out, but we'll know better next time, won't we? The freak hysteria has died as swiftly as it blew up, but now we're watching the skies, for the search for the fire clown seems to prove that he has left Earth, and may now be hiding out on Mars or Ganymede. If he's got bombs up there too, we must be ready for him. Although angered, Alan was also amused by the laser caster's double thinking ability. He, like the rest, had done a quick about face, and now Simon Powers, ex-villain and victimizer, was the hero of the hour. So, the media are rapidly changing the narrative, as tends to happen. Mm. We know in news cycles, something that was reported yesterday, if it ain't talked about again, pretty much ceases to exist. Mm. But that's not the only crazy news to come for Alan. And <laughs> maybe we won't spoil it this time. People may read this book. So the return to Earth, Alan's got a lot to chew over because he's just found out that the Fire Clown's his dad. And we find out that the Fire Clown was an astronaut who... Was he married to Powers' granddaughter? No, Powers, he wanted to marry her. He wanted to marry her. Yeah. Powers hated his guts. We find out later on, Powers has been at the heart of this the entire time. So the return to Earth, first up, he's determined to argue the Fire Clown's innocence. Despite being unconvinced by what he sees as a rather wild philosophy, he's still convinced he's being framed by his grandfather and the world government. And, you know, he's probably right. Mm. And Helen is sort of campaign for the presidency out. So Alan's protestations still fail. His grandfather and co are in the hunt for the fire clown determined to run him to ground. And Alan quits his job with the civil service. You're my hero, Alan. And he joins Helen in the RLM, which I forgot what it's called, Radical Liberal Movement, as her PA for her run at the presidency. This book has gone from setting up an intriguing political thriller to a psychedelic space trip that predicts the longevity of Scientology albeit not exactly accurately, and now back to the depiction of a political campaign by a radical left-wing political party, complete with pages and pages <laughs> of description of her and her committee talking about how they're going to transmit the message. And <laughs> I love it. It's brilliant. <laughs> it, it, it could be a couple of pages from a very British coup, all this Yes, stuff. yeah. It's, it's wonderful. And again, I wish Moorcock had done more like this before moving away from, from science fiction. We have get a bit where... The RLM acknowledge that they've rolled over in joining the condemnation. And how fucking common is this these days? We're seeing this mm. in the news this week. Mm. We get a bit where the RLM acknowledge they've rolled over in joining the condemnation of Fire Clan and believe they should now just not mention him at all anymore yes. for fear of it being used against them as a political tool and it being a vote loser. Oh, you, you're so disappointing, RLM. Truth doesn't matter. What matters is votes and message. 
and not upsetting the people that you want to appeal to. Uh, but Helen sticks to her guns and makes it the central plank of her platform. Go, Helen. I would vote for her. Although <laughs> it don't go that well for her either. <laughs> oh, dear. They, they end up covered in bruises, these two, on a number of occasions. <laughs> it's a tough campaign. There's public hysteria about the fire clown that's been deeply embedded by the media or controlling the narrative, not to mention tough questions about pricing of sea products and visits from the Latter-day Adventists who, yes. de- who declare that they're the forces of Satan. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, that that just flew in there. That one. Yeah, yeah. yeah so there's just just two pages of Alan having, having to have a conversation with four Latter Day Adventists <laughs> who are telling him off for being for working for Satan. Yeah, but he does get a useful piece of information from them, and that is actually what ends up cracking the case for him. So thank you to the Latter Day Adventists because they crack the case because he finds or he hears from them that there is an organisation called the Secret Sons of the Fire Clown in Mayfair in London. So he hops on a plane or whatever he hops on, or a train. He goes to Mayfair anyway, and he says, uh, I love this bit. I think you mentioned earlier on you really love this bit. I oh, I love it, great. yeah, yeah. Mayfair moulded. Nowhere on the three planets was there a slum like it, and riches, not poverty, had indirectly created it. As Alan walked up the festering streets of Park Lane, a light drizzle falling from the overcast afternoon sky, he remembered the story of how it had got like this. Mayfair was the property of one man, a man whose ambition had been to own it, who had achieved his ambition and was now near senile. Ronald Lowry, the British financier, who refused to let the government buy him out and refused also to improve his property. The original residents and business houses had moved out long since, unable to stand Lowry's weird dictatorship. The homeless, and especially the criminal homeless, had moved in. Like Lowry, they weren't interested in improving the property either. For them, it was fine as it was. A warren of huge, disused hotels, office blocks and apartment buildings. Lowry was rich, perhaps the richest man in the world, and Lowry, in spite of his senility, had power. He would not let a single government official set foot on his property and backed up his wishes by threatening to withdraw his capital from industries which, without it, would flounder and give the government unemployment problems, relocation problems and the like. Until a less cautious party came to power, Mayfair would continue to moulder, at least for as long as Lowry lived. The scruffy, old-world architecture of the Hilton, the Dorchester and the Millennium Grand towered above Alan as he passed between them and the jungle that grew alongside Hyde Park. Hyde Park itself was public property, neat and orderly, well maintained by London's City Council but roots had spread and shrubs had flowered, making an almost impenetrable hedge along the borders of the park. Wisely, he did not head immediately for the Dorchester, where Blaz was supposed to be. Blaz, we found out, is a a suspected arms dealer who seems to have been working both sides. But went instead to a cafe that still bore the name of the Darlington Grill. The Speciality de la Maison these days, however, was fish and chips from the smell. The majority of the men were gaudily dressed in the latest styles, but some were down at heel. Not necessarily criminals, but priders. People refused to accept the citizens' grant which the government allowed to all who were unable to work, whether because of physical or emotional reasons. These were extreme emotional cases who, if they had not come to the official free area of Mayfair, would have been cured by this time and rehabilitated. Mayfair, Alan thought, was indeed a strange anachronism, and a blot on the three planets. 
Ronald Lowry's vast financial resources had produced the only skid row now in existence. Alan had taken the precaution of getting himself a green luminous suit and a flowing scarlet cravat which made him feel sick whenever he saw himself in a mirror. On his head was perched, at a jaunty angle, a conical cap of bright and hideous blue, edged with gold sateen. <laughs> he saw by the list chalked on a board at the end of the cafe that his nose hadn't lied. The only food was turbot and chips. The liquor, it seemed, was a product of a local firm, a choice between wheat, parsnip or nettle wine. He ordered a wheat wine and found it clear and good, like a full-bodied sauterne. It was only spoiled by the disgusting aroma of illicit cigarettes smoked by several of the nicotine addicts who lounged in what was evidently a drug-induced euphoria at the greasy tables. Before he had left the city of Switzerland, Alan had procured one of the badges previously worn by the Fire Clown supporters, a small metal sun emblem which the disillusioned Sons of the Sun had rid themselves of when public sympathy for the Fire Clown had changed to anger. That's just fucking great. I mm. love it. Mm. And it is. and I, I don't think you're a gamer, but that is a perfect setting. A perfect setting for a good long session of games. Mm. The, the, the Mayfair area of Lowry in this setting. It's, it's just fantastic. There are so many story possibilities just explode mm. out of those lines of text. I, I can totally see... How you would do that? How that would work? Yeah, I mean, to me, it's sort of like a a less violent, less apocalyptic escape from New York setting. Yeah, where you've got that, especially as you've got like Hyde Park is perfect. Yeah, and then just over the other side of the fence, woof! It's gone. It's yeah. just falling to bits, and uh, people are just sort of like hanging around, and you don't know what's going to happen. It's dark. It's it's crumbling. And it's a great piece of um, sort of like end of the world scenario with just that little bit of London. It's yeah. so nicely done. Yeah, it's it's fabulous. The idea that you have these, you know, these prides mm. who reject the idea of effectively social security mm. in in favour of living and dressing how they want to live and how they want to dress in these weird warrens. Mm. Oh, it's you know they'll be. There'll be face offs and dance offs and oh yeah and, and jacket offs and trouser offs and <laughs> works. It'd be absolutely yeah. wonderful. It'd be wonderful. Alan's and, hat though. Oh. I do have to mention Alan's hat. The idea of wearing the little conical hat is uh, it's like a kid's birthday party. What's going on? Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, I mean that's the second conical hat because the fire yeah. clown wears one as well, doesn't he? He does. It's mm. perhaps it's a father son thing. Yeah. Who knows? I mean, oh. even the civil service wear purple pantaloons. Oh yeah. In Switzerland, so you know, it's, it's it's only it's a matter of time here. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty slow. <laughs> I mean, if the civil service in the UK brought in a policy of purple jackets and pantaloons, that's probably the single thing that would motivate me to lose five stone. So I could get away with it, because seriously, pantaloons wouldn't look good on my fat legs. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but yeah. Long story short, we're gonna have to cut to the chase now. I think. Okay, but. Alan unveils the plot to carry out terrorist firebomb attacks in London in the name of the Fire Clown, but it all tracks back via Blass and Junna to mm. Minister Powis, his mm. grandfather. There are lots and lots of twists and turns in this last act. And actually, when I was reading it for a long period of time, I was fully expecting that it was all going to turn out really badly for Alan. Mm. I was thinking, it's Alan versus the system now. It's Alan and Helen versus the system, and the system will win. But actually, it turns out that the chief of police turns out to be a good one, and uh, and Minister Powers gets arrested. But 
the best thing <laughs> the best thing is despite alan successfully uncovering the plot and actually they do start firebombing and they do start setting off nuclear weapons around the world in order to um to maintain and hold control hmm. despite the fact that he serves the fire clown's reputation and brings down his grandfather there's one final twist <laughs> <laughs> the, the the uh the fire clowns are wrong and after all yeah <laughs> and they end up in a sticky situation where the fire clown is going to basically fuck the planet <laughs> fuck the planet I... using his weird tardis yeah yeah i know I, I i read that and thought hang on a minute he's he's gone from let's let's not rely on technology and let's go yeah. back to nature to we're going to wipe out your intelligence so you're an unthinking beast yeah and, and you can't do anything other than just mill about or lie on a sofa and yeah. it's like hang on a minute he's got he's, he's making everyone students yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. fucking hell yeah yeah it's, it's incredible um and all along the fire clown was innocent of the crimes he was being accused of it was just his other crime he hadn't quite yeah. kicked <laughs> yeah. in yet yeah. uh, it's brilliant and, and it all finishes off with after they've been put on trial at the same time the fire clown escapes springs powers and they go on the lamb together <laughs> and fly off into space <sighs> the end yeah so <laughs> <laughs> i know what a crazy ending that is isn't it? Oh, it's, it's amazing it's, it's almost scooby-doo that ending isn't oh, it's just brilliant <laughs> Really, they, just, they just say, "Oh, you know how strong he is. He overpowered the guards, and then mm. he sprung. Then he sprung Minister Powis, and they fucked off on his spaceship." Yeah, yeah. So, what was that all about, Andy? Seriously, thoughts <sighs> on the Winds of Limbo, aka the Fire Clown? Well, I, I think, as you say, it's it's a political potboiler, yeah. um, which looks at exposing the two facedness of the media and how politicians etc will manipulate things mm. plus the fact that don't trust your fucking heroes because they can be right cunts to be quite <laughs> honest yeah. yeah yeah absolutely just going back to that idea that the fire clown is some kind of fucked up doctor who kind of figure mm. about the third of the way through messiah at the end of time aka constant fire aka the transformation of this made for me the fire clown's ship lands amongst the denizens at the end of time and they're all really, uh, really fascinated by it, and they're they're wondering where it's come from, and and that they judge that actually it hasn't travelled through space; it's travelled through time. They judge it to be a time machine, and the occupant comes out and it says the newcomer had struck a strange pose, arms stiffly extended before him, his little mouth smiling, head held up. He spoke in fluting musical tones that were this time completely comprehensible to them all. I welcome you, people of Earth, to my presence. I cannot say how moved I am to be among you again, and I appreciate your own feelings on this wonderful day. For the hero of your greatest legends returns to you. Ah, but how you have yearned for me. How you must have prayed for me to come back to you, to bring you life, to bring you reassurance, to bring you that tranquility that can only be achieved by pain. Well, dear people of Earth, I am back. At long last, I am back. Back, grunted Abu Thaleb. Oh, the journey has demented him suggested Miss Mervis May. Abu Thaleb cleared his throat. I believe you have the advantage, sir. We missed the name, explained Dr. Velospian, his voice a fraction animated. A sweet smile appeared on the creature's ruby lips. But you must recognise me. Not staring of memory for my part, said Dr. Velospian. A picture perhaps in the old cities, but no, said Abu Thaleb. You do look like someone, some old writer or other, said Miss Ming. I never did literature. He frowned, 
He turned his palms inwards. He looked down at his own strange body. His voice trilled on. Yes, yes, I suppose it is possible you do not recognise this particular manifestation. Perhaps you could offer a clue, Dr. Velospian said. Dr. Velospian sat up in his cushions for the first time. He was ignored. The newcomer was patting his chest. I have changed my physical appearance so many times that I've forgotten how I looked at first. The body has probably diminished quite a lot. The hands are certainly of a different shape. Once, as I recall, I was fat. As fat as your friend. Oh, he's gone. The one who was here when I first emerged and whose language I couldn't understand. The translator is working fine now, eh? Good, good. Oh, yes. Quite as fat as him. Fatter. And tall, I think. Much taller than any of you. But I leaned towards economy. I had the opportunity to change, to be more comfortable in the confines of my ship. I caused my physique to be altered. Irreversibly. This form was modelled after a hero of my own whose name and achievements I forget. Still, the form is immaterial. I am here, as I say, to bring you fulfilment. The Doctor Who parallels are even mm. more obvious mm. in that one. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, Mocock would go on to write an actual Doctor Who novel. I still haven't Yes. Yeah. Uh, need to get that up on the itinerary. So, broader points, like all good allegorical SF, the plot probably could be... You could strip that of most of its sci-fi trappings and it would still be an effective thriller. I'm just trying to remember. Who wrote, wrote a book called The Glory Boys? And I'm sure part of the plot of The Glory Boys was about using nuclear weapons okay. in a similar sort of way. Yeah. I can't, such a long time since I've read it. But like a lot of Mocock, I think this has been quietly influential. And not just because of like, you know, the hive cities and oh. and all that stuff. But one of the things that struck me when I was reading it was the impact of the sun on the psychology of the fire clown oh. and him getting all crispy. So have you seen Sunshine? Yes. The, the Danny Boyle film written by yeah, Alex yeah, Garland. Yeah. Yeah. So Alex Garland, great screenwriter for sure, but someone who definitely doesn't hide his influences. Mm. I think it's certainly been the case over the years that media criticism that's been very supportive of him generally has no idea where his ideas have been coming from. And a great example of that is 28 Days Later. When yeah. that came out, it was lauded as reinventing the zombie genre by critics who'd only ever seen Romero flicks and copycats. Mm. And at the end of the day, 28 Days Later is a mashup of David Cronenberg's Rabid, mm. Romero's Dawn of the Dead, well, mm. more likely, Day of the Dead. Yes. Wyndham's Day of the Triffids. And Umberto Lenz's Nightmare City. Mm. Mash all those up together and film it with a crap digital handicam. You get 28 Days Later. And even to the point where the virus in 28 Days Later is called the Rage Virus. Rabid in Europe was called Rage. Ah. I don't think any of this is an accident. No, I think I Alex Garland loves this stuff. Yeah. And, he, and, and he weaves this stuff into his material. Like Annihilation, great film, but it's basically Roadside Picnic. You know, the Strugatsky Brothers' Roadside Picnic, filmed, of course, by Tarkovsky as Stalker, a much stripped-down version. In, if anything, Annihilation is almost as faithful in its own way to Roadside Picnic as Stalker is. Mm. And, well, for more thoughts on that, check out plug Fictoplasm, Ralph Glovegrove's Fictoplasm, the episode on Roadside Picnic, and we had a good discussion about that. Uh, but Sunshine, I wouldn't be at all surprised if Garland had read The Fire Clown at some point, and that little worm in his mind influenced not only the Cliff Curtis character, who spends all his time in that room watching at the sun, his skin mm. growing gradually crispy, and becoming yes. more and more philo philosophical as he becomes more and more obsessed with the sun, but mm. also the 
that, that film's really odd in that in the third act they just throw a villain in from nowhere yeah yes Pin, pinbacker the last survivor of the other ship mm. who's gone through a similar thing to cliff curtis but is super crispy now mm. and he's being kind of super evil but also philosophizing and he ends up pinbacker ends up some sort of combination of the fire clown corsa and sort of a cenobite although sadly probably less interesting than any of them and fun fact pinbacker is probably just a play on pinback from darkstar dan o'bannon character is called pinback hmm. and darkstar is about a ship that fires bombs into the sun hmm. so yes alex garland's stuff is shot through with reference hmm. yeah I've never seen the beach, so I've no idea what that might be influenced by. But yeah, Moorcock's story, you know, we, we talk endlessly about how influential Moorcock's fantasy stories have been on the genre. But mm. I think The Black Corridor, this, I think whilst they're generally considered by a lot of Moorcock fans who favour the fantasy stuff to be peculiarities that he wrote in the 60s before he settled into his groove, mm. I think they're incredible pieces of work. And I mm. think this is another one. I think it's a great mm. piece of work. You Definitely. Know, notwithstanding those early, you know, concerns. Mm. Yeah. So yeah. That was the Winds of Limbo. Good stuff. Mm. Well, thanks for coming back and talking about the Winds of Limbo and the Fire Clown with me, Andy. It's been an absolute pleasure. No, it's pleasure's all mine. I've just about finished my second pint of cacao gin and tonic. So <laughs> I'll probably be ready for bed after this. Oh, ah, good man. <laughs> <laughs> but Thanks for coming. And not only that, let's get our heads together and think about something else that we can look at in the future. And actually, if there's anything that you fancy doing that isn't three million pages long and that isn't Moorcock, mm. that was one of your formative influences, mm. let's do that. Just let me know and we'll think of okay. something. Okay. Yeah, that'd be good. All right, man. Much right. appreciated. No problem. Massive thanks once again to Andy for joining me in Darien Toms. You can find me and the monkey at book retailers, and although I would not generally recommend the ubiquitous online retail giant we all tut at, but still tend to use when it suits, both volumes are available at a very good price on there at the time I'm recording this, so do check them out. Since our last episode went out, we've had our Halloween poll up for patrons to choose from this year's shortlist that comprises the following. Slugs by Sean Hudson. Second year on the poll for Hudson's killer critter feature. Now, as we've enjoyed looking at a company and films the odd time with previous shows, particularly things like The Rats and The Devils of D-Day, where we did Manitou, the other Graham Masterton novel that was actually turned into a film, we decided this year to also take a look at film adaptations, should they actually exist. And, if not, a film that feels thematically similar and appropriate. And there is a film adaptation of Slugs, so if it gets the vote, we'll be watching it. Not for the first time for me personally, I love it. Next on the list, following on from our good time with the fungus, we're offering more Harry Adam Knight action with Slimer, and it's straight to DVD film adaptation, Proteus. Third up, and as is tradition, more James Herbert, we're going back to the well here, but skipping over an instalment to dive straight into the nuclear apocalypse in his third giant knobhead rat opus, Domain. Sadly, there is no film adaptation of Domain. I did think about Threads as a film option, as it has the nuclear Armageddon, and I'm pretty sure there are rats in a couple of scenes, but that film's been done to death, so we'll go with Bruno Mattei's post-apocalyptic rat horror, Rats, Night of Terror. And finally, 
Claude in the options for this year, The Cats by Nick Sharman, a cynical 1970s cash-in by one of New English Library's staff writers, writing under a pseudonym. Once again, no film version here either, so if the cats get the vote, we'll just watch Cats. So, dear patrons, there is yet time to vote. Unless, of course, you're listening to this after the poll closes, in which case the choice has been made, and we may have actually blasted our sanity already by forcing ourselves to watch something involving James Corden. Pray for our immortal souls. And naturally, thanks as always to our patrons for keeping this wagon rolling. First, those without tear, Anthony Piconti, Tim Cardos, Dave Dempster, and Sebastian Weetabix and our chaos engineers Andrew Cicluna, Andrew Van Ness, Anthony Porter, Benjamin Fletcher, Brandon Mays, Craig Ledley, Dave Griffiths, Dave Voxman, Gabriel Laycock, Harvey Faulkner-Aston, Jim Kirkland, Jim Knight, John W. Lays, Jules Lawrence, Mal Pertwee, Mary Catherine, Matt Saltz, Nelbert, Paul McRandall, PJ Cooper, Scott Butler, and Simon Perrins, and of course, thanks to our crafty jugaderos, Alexander Harris, Laws, Taylor, Matthew Broom, Graham Holden, Ray Otis, and Toby White. And finally, eternal thanks to our patron demons. And first up, and new to the patron demons here, Harold Mucker Tony Malazzo. Thanks for the further vote of confidence, Tony. And Alistair Davison, Andy Clark, Andy Darby, David Lee, Fred Keish, Gareth Wilson. Greg Faulkner, Gwen Barlow, Ian Stead, Imria, Janie Stim, Jason Vogel, Jay Risa, Joe Monty, Lee Gary, Mark Hebden, Miles Riedelbato, Neil Burton, Paul Hillary, Randall Gatlin, Steve Round, Tom Murphy, the OG patron, Norman Beresford, and last, but of course, never in the slightest bit least, Robert McMillan. Right, enough yakking. Don't forget you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram with the handle at Breakfast Ruins. You can email us at breakfastruins@outlook.com. The webpage is breakfastintheruins.com. We have our Patreon page too, and there are a few extra odds and sods on there. But for now, take care, stay safe, and we will meet again soon on the Moonbeam Roads. Mm-hmm.